we usually begin with a prayer. So, I will begin a, with a prayer to the goddess of knowledge, Saraswati, who will uh, allow the talks and the discussions to flow. That will be very nice. Ya Devi Stuyate Nityam Vibudhair Veda Paragaihi Sami Vasatujihwagre Brahmarupa Saraswati Brahmarupa Saraswati Om May that goddess who is praised by the wise, bless this endeavor by sitting on the tongue of the speaker. Yeah. Let her sit on the tip of my tongue, that is good, no? Yeah. Then you do not have to listen to me, you listen to her, that is better, it is much better. Um, I am very honored and privileged to be here today. Thank you for inviting me and uh, thank you also for your patience for waiting so long while uh, I was in the Holland Tunnel. <laughs> it is like a birth canal that leads one to New York. <laughs> it is a yoni, you know, into New York. This is what the, the Holland Tunnel represents and I got to know it intimately today, <laughs> you know. And uh, so, thank you and then as, as I was in the Holland Tunnel, it was actually a very contemplative space, strangely enough. And I was thinking that, okay, since I am going to be late, I cannot talk about procrastination. So, <laughs> that topic has got already cancelled. Because if you are not able to model something, you have no business to talk about that. So, like this, I was just having fun. What we will talk about today is, uh, is already there, sadhana, which means, you know, which does not mean practice, actually, it means the means. Sadhana means means. And the means are always wedded to an end and the end whatever that might be is called sadhya. So, sadhana the means, sadhya the end the goals and it is very important no matter in what tradition the two have to be married together. Sadhana and sadhya should be married together otherwise you know then it, you know, then the means do not go towards the goal, one is all over the place. So, even before we think about practice sadhana or what means do we deploy, the end has to be very clear, otherwise it is the end of the practice, finish. <laughs> and so, what is the end? You know, this is something we have to clarify for ourselves. Why sit? Why meditate? 
why learn to manage anger why learn to overcome fear why learn to grow spiritually why all this you know why are we doing all these practices whatever we might be doing there is always a reason and in each tradition when you look at the reason it's different if you look at the mainstream uh, traditions the religions the the end is always outside of the realm of what we call in sanskrit the jagat this lived reality of you know names and forms so the end is always some afterlife you know why are you doing this so that god or whoever it is will be pleased with me and then will give me a ticket to what heaven and in heaven i can be with god and that is the goal and this is the goal of a lot of mainstream ways of being in the in the contemporary world together uh, today but the ancient traditions you know even though we may have a concept of heaven in fact in the hindu tradition we have a concept of heaven and the vedas talk about heaven in fact we have seven of them yeah seven up seven down and so <laughs> we have you know all kinds of lokas but they are temp temporal they are also time bound you know and so the goal of life cannot be after life that's silly then what for we are here you know the while coming here i saw a number of detour signs don't take this turn detour detour then this life itself with this precious body even more precious mind and all the gifts and the potential than the talents that we bring that we are blessed with becomes a useless because all i'm waiting i'm just here in a waiting room this world and all the relationships becomes a waiting room in order to go somewhere else so for us for the ancient traditions coming from the eastern world the goal of life is not after life whatever it may be it's not after life because that leaves one feeling desperate what to do here if i'm constantly biding my time i'm not inhabiting the present i'm waiting for something in the future and this is something which is which we do not accept then if that is already unceremoniously dismissed you know what is the goal so any kind of goal if there has to be a goal for human life it has to be i'm talking very generally it has to be attainable in the here and the now otherwise what is the use so whatever the goal is it has to be here and now and there is a certain universality to all this and what is this universality in the sense that everybody appears to have a similar goal you ask anybody anywhere what do you want i want to be free what do you want i want to be happy what does that mean i don't know but it's not what what i am right now <laughs> that much i know <laughs> things go, have got to change that much i know 
Okay, how long you want to be happy? Nobody says, I think I'm happy. I'll be happy if I'm happy for the next five minutes. No. How long you want to be happy? Huh? Forever. The word is forever. That's why the word forever is loved by all of us. Forever. <laughs> and it has an abiding presence in all our wants and desires. And it has an abiding presence also in all the marriage vows. Yeah, this is forever. Even the tenth marriage, the person will be saying, this is forever. So it's very clear they are not looking for the marriage. The marriage is a means, sadhana, for the end, happiness or freedom from a sense of want, really. That is how we define happiness. And I don't think it's any different from yours. Because there are certain things that are timeless. This is one of them. And so, so nobody wants, you know, the marriage. You, know, you can't say that to the significant other, of course. <laughs> but <laughs> what one wants is what one can get out of it. The marriage becomes a means to my own contentment. It's a ticket to my contentment. All the activities that I engage in, they are hopefully seen as tickets to my contentment. But then what happens? You know, nothing happens. That's the problem. All these tickets seem very illusory. They self-destruct. I think I've got it. This is the real thing. You know, the real thing. In fact, there are a lot of claims for real thing. Starting with Coca-Cola, which touts itself as the real thing. What is the real thing? You know, very difficult to say. And so, I am stuck somewhere here. Because in this realm of action, whatever I, all the means that I am deploying, all the sadhana of whether it's marriage, children, job, etc., they can keep me entertained for a little while, and after that, I very soon start to see their limitations. Then I feel bad about myself. I say, what's wrong with me? The whole world seems to be very happy, and they seem to be going along with their whatever they are doing. I'm the one who is discontented with everything. What's wrong with me? Actually, it should be what is right with me. Oh. Because that is the seed, that feeling of discontent. It's not actually the feeling of discontent. The feeling was there for many lifetimes. It's the recognition and the naming of the discontent, the owning up and the naming of the discontent that brings one to the Zen center. That brings one, because everything else has been tried, you know, for many, 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 many lifetimes. Nothing works. Okay, let me try this. Usually, the spiritual solution is the final and the last solution. <laughs> Nobody says, let us go to the Zen center. Because, you know, I just want to know more about myself. And, I, I, and I'm already very happy. And I just want to just be, I want to just be a contented person arriving here. Nobody says that. I mean, there may be exceptions. But generally, all our routes to whether it's gurukulams, ashrams, Zen centers, any kind of a place that is committed to one's spiritual growth is the feeling, is the rankling feeling that one is not able to express what is wrong with me. 
And coming here, it's already ha. Everybody is in the same boat. <laughs> I meet everyone who is having the same problems. Immediately, there is a feeling of being embraced. I have finally found the right place. <laughs> I have finally found the place where I can see what this discontent is all about. And how perhaps all the practices in my life, and I'm not talking of just spiritual practices, I'm talking of also the, you know, the mundane everyday practices from getting up, brushing teeth, etc. How all these practices have actually not helped me so far. This is what I see when I enter a place of worship, when I enter a place of that is dedicated to some kind of a contemplative practice, when I make a U-turn back to myself, really. When I see that the world in which I'm engaged is not having that, you know, the things to offer me, because I have seen through their finitude, I have seen how finite they are, and I have seen that they are only good at one thing, in their capacity to disappoint, they, are, they have perfected themselves. <laughs> disappoint repeatedly they do. And in their capacity to disappoint, the things in the world, they have perfected themselves as none other. None other than that. And knowing this itself is a great blessing. We see that as a great blessing. It's like a river that, that is flowing all over the place. And then it's going to meet the ocean, you know, ocean is equal to heaven. It thinks that it's somewhere outside of itself, it has to hurry to meet the ocean. But then suddenly it turns towards itself, it makes a U-turn. And in India, those places, in one of the places Greg and I were there uh, recently, in Varanasi, and uh, you know, there the river has turned towards itself, it becomes a holy place. Because there you go, and it becomes a source of prayer, just like, oh, Mother River, you have made the U-turn, despite all odds. It's not easy for a gushing body of water to turn around. Think about it. Just like you have made the U-turn against all odds, may you give me this blessing too, to turn back to myself. And then one can argue, all right, this is nice, we have made the U-turn. So what is the goal? Myself. And what is the means? Myself. And if the goal is myself, the means are myself, everything is myself, then where is the practice? Do I need a practice to meet myself? I have to shake the hand? I mean, what, what is this? So then, you know, one starts to think there is no need for a practice at all. Dispense with it. And in fact, in our tradition, in the Vedantic tradition, we call it, you know, a, a kind of an ahankara, an a, a ego that comes and says, I'm already there. I have arrived, you know. And th these are famous last words, you know. Last words of what? Of the spiritual growth, finished, you know. As soon as you say, I have arrived, that means there's nowhere to go. And even if that be the truth that is talked about in the scriptures, even if that be the truth, this arrival is, is uh, you know, to think that is a mistake. To think that is a mistake because 
it stops us instead of furthering the growth. Yes, I have arrived because I was never separate from that which I seek. The seeker and the sought are one and the same. What I sought was contentment, freedom, happiness. What I am is already contentment, freedom, happiness. Yes, I have arrived and I have not arrived. <laughs> I have not arrived because there is a gap between myself and the contentment that I seek. I have arrived because I have to take the words of the ancient scriptures saying in, in many traditions, in the Hindu tradition, in, in various Buddhist traditions, that you are looking for something in the world that it cannot give. The only things it can give, I told you, are discontent and, you know, the world in 3D. Discontent, delusion and disturbance. That's all it can give. <laughs> the Jagat in 3D. You know, that's all it can give. So, the turning away is important. And turning away from, if the, if I am not facing the universe, I am facing myself. But here there is a little bit of a gap between the I, I think I am and the I that I strive to be. That I know I am and I strive to be. And that is where the sadhana comes into being. Sadhana comes into being because of the distance between Atma, myself, and that which is called also the, by another derivation of the same root, Atma alone. Atti iti Atma. Atti means that which keeps on eating the fruits of action. You know, experiencing the fruits of action, one keeps going along and keeps getting disappointed. And then what? The fruits of action are finite because the actions themselves are finite and the fruits they bear are infinitely finite. And that leads to further discontent. And so therefore, I have to, you know, I have to understand this I that I seek, also called Atma, Apnoti Sarvam, that which envelops everything, that which has already gained everything. So, in fact, in every seeker, there are two aspects. Vedanta describes them as two beings. One is the one who is content, who is free, who doesn't want anything, who is happy going along with what is. And the other one is what? Is the, is the one I know extremely well. <laughs> is the everyday one that is always discontented. Will the real me please stand up? <laughs> and people argue, how do you know which is real? They ask me. Then I always say, let us take the discontented one as the real one. No, 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 no. <laughs> Immediately they protest, no, 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 no. We want the other one to be real. How do you know? I know, somehow I know. In fact, it's not just an individual's knowing. All the pharmaceutical companies know this. That's why they are busy making over-the-counter anti-anxiety, anti-depression. They also know that the goal, that the, your true self is happiness. 
depression is an aberration anxiety is an aberration panic attacks are an aberration and therefore they keep making new new medicines so that they hope that at least chemically they can bring you back to your state you know your natural place where you are at home with yourself so this is common knowledge I don't want to be discontented. I don't want to be complaining. I don't want to be wanting. And then what? I want to be satisfied. I want to be contented. And one does experience this contentment. In sleep, yeah? One does experience happiness in sleep. That's why it's so hard to wake up in the morning. Yeah. So hard to wake up in the morning. Especially if you follow ancient traditions, it says wake up at before sunrise. Very difficult, yeah. Even in the winter, the sun is also obliging and rising late. Now I have to, you know, start waking up early. Very difficult. And so therefore, this sleep itself, in a way, gives a big hint of my state. That everyone loves to go to sleep. And that everybody hates to wake up is another universal fact. It's a universal fact that the which me is really real and which me do I want to be. It's very clear. It's universal. Then we just have a small question. What about the other I? <laughs> the complaining one, the one that is wedded to action, the one that is running around in circles chasing its own tail and the one that is, you know, always disturbed, you know. But it really doesn't exist. Yes, but you may say that, but it exists for me. I feel this split within me. In fact, that's what the whole healing is about. It's about healing that split. And that's why the ancient traditions are priceless. Because you have to heal the split. The teachers of yore have healed the split in very ingenious ways. Because ultimately, the split is non-existent. But the split is causing a problem, so the student thinks it is existent. It's like the student, you know, there's an ancient story, who came into the ashram from outside saying, I have been bitten by a snake, I have been bitten by a snake. He was jumping up and down, very agitated. They took off his shirt and examined him for the, the marks of the fangs, finding none. And he said, oh, the poison is climbing the leg. Now it is up to the waist. I'm going to be paralyzed and I'm going to die right now. Very agitated, you know. And so the teacher said, okay, this calls for drastic measures. Let me go see, at least go see where the snake is. Because if you identify the snake, we can prepare some anti-venom. And they go outside and say, please, where did you see the snake? He, he can't even look. He points to the grass. And where, the, where he points is a rope that has three turns, three bends, just like a snake. It's lying there. Are you sure this bit you? Yes. This bit me. I need emergency care. I need ICU. I need a blood transfusion. I need a dialysis now. And the co-students tried to teach him and say, Look, this is not a snake. No, it is a snake. The person is convinced. Agnana sarpena dashta, bitten by the snake of self-ignorance, we say. 
And so the teacher has to, you know, it's not easy to be a teacher, you know. Yeah. <laughs> because you're not dealing with one student. In every student, there's at least two. Yeah. The, the one who wants the knowledge, the one who wants, who, who wants other things, you know. Yeah. The one who wants the finite and the infinite both come together and then lie on the floor and say, please take me as the student. Yeah. And so there are at least two people, you know, sometimes more. And then you have to pacify the, you have to pacify the agitated one and teach the adult. This is a very interesting, you know, very interesting acrobatics. So here in this story, the teacher says, yes, you have been bitten by a very bad snake. Is the teacher telling a lie? No, he's going along with the student's ignorance and saying, yes, you have been badly, badly, sadly bitten. Such a young man, so much ahead of you. <laughs> Very sad. How would you like to be cremated? No. <laughs> he says, but asti upaya, upaya means there is a remedy here. We can do something about this. Fortunately, if you had waited outside even for two minutes, it would have been the end. You have come at the right time. And the student says, oh, he, he forgets the paralysis. He forgets all this, uh, whatever symptoms he read on Google. He has forgotten all of them. <laughs> Snake bite symptoms. He's forgotten all of them. And then he says, oh, really? There is a, there is a way? Yes, there is a way. And you know, what, what should I do? And the teacher's words are like a balm, you know, and they ease and soothe the agitated one. And finally, when he's available for teaching, the teacher brings in the rope and says, this is, is the snake that bit you. No, 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 I don't want to look at it. Please, just look at it. I'm right with you. I'm going to hold your hand. Look at it. Oh, it looks like a rope, but maybe it's a snake practicing camouflage. No. <laughs> It's a rope. See, I'm touching it. Yeah, it's better you only touch it. No, no, I want you to touch it a little bit. Nothing will happen. And so saying gradually, the student knows that this angst that he was going through was non-existent. But you can't dismiss the world as non-existent. It is existent until it is seen properly for what it is. It is existent until I have transcended my own anxieties and I'm able to look at it objectively. And this is the reason why we need sadhana. The daily dose of anxiety is not good for the body. Yeah. Not good for the mind either. So therefore the sadhana here you know, implies that the goal is something which is already attained, but it is still being away from me cognitively. It is yet to be attained. And in this attaining the goal, I am attending the dharma talks, I am doing all these things, I am progressing towards the goal. But then I also need a spiritual practice to help me to not swerve away from the goal, to help me to be one with the goal. And that brings us to a very interesting discussion, which is the crux of this talks. What, 
what should the practice be crafted of? Should it be some kind of a special kriya? And there are many people in, you know, selling those kriyas. Some kind of respiratory thing, you know. You have to breathe in a certain way. Oh, really? How? Come this weekend and I'll tell you after $1,500. <laughs> Air is free, you know. And uh, breathing is involuntary. You can breathe in the happiness and breathe out all whatever, you know. It's not, you know, that, that there are people who do that. So should it be a special meditation, a special practice just for me to be able to overcome this, the, the anxiety of the day to day and to be able to progress towards the goal. It's, you know, there are a lot of special meditations. In the Upanishads, there are so many special meditations. And, you know, there is the heart lotus meditation. Visualize the lotus in the heart area. Inside that, you visualize a shining light, which is the truth of yourself. Or if you believe in some, you know, devata, you can have that devata, that deva seated in the heart, and you meditate. Akshini Purusha Upasana, you look, you know, you, you think of that same light of consciousness behind the right eye and you look at the whole universe. There are so many special meditations, you know, deploying which or reading about which, the seeker feels wonderful. Oh, somebody has crafted this just for me. Fantastic. I'm going to learn a special meditation. Yippee. Very exciting. And this is why it is given, because we get routinized and bored very easily. This is the lot of the jiva, you know, very bored very quickly. And after doing the heart lotus meditation a couple of times, oh, been there, done that. What's next? Oh, right eye meditation, okay, been there, done that. What's next? You know, why don't you see the whole world as that consciousness itself? Okay, that's boring, been there, done that. I want something special. Okay, watch the breathing. Been there, done that. And uh, watch, you know, watch the nose, watch the toes. You know, it's all, once it's done, it's done. So really speaking, in a way, if this is our lot, we haven't transformed from being the seeker in the outside world. We have brought that same mentality. Outside, I was an experienced hunter. Outside where? You know, outside the Zendo. Yeah. Before I came here, I was an experienced hunter. And then what? Now I'm a hunter of special spiritual dispensations and blessings. It's like a big pump in the sky, you know, it's dispensing goodies. And I have to be under it. It's the same mentality. And that mentality, again, that I'm seeking something outside is not going to help in the progress. So the special meditations are given so that the people can keep coming to the, you know, center. Yeah. But the true center is here. That is what I have to get to know and be comfortable with. And then even though we say that the truth of the I, we say in Vedanta, is actionless. 
it performs no action, it just simply is. It is that presence which abides in everything, inhabits everything, free of everything, free of all attributes, nameless, formless, at once you. That is what it is. Even though that is the truth, try sitting actionless. <laughs> Immediately you will realize even sitting is an action, correct? Yeah. The spine, you may say, I am not acting. The spinal cords, if they could talk, they would sing a different tune. They would say, you may not be acting. I am working so hard to keep you, uh, without slouching like this, to keep you in the position of meditation. What do I get? I am ignored because I am behind, you know. <laughs> Nobody looks at me. Only when I, when I ache, then you go to the doctor. Otherwise, you don't do yoga, you don't do anything, you don't take care of me at all. Wherever you go, I have to go. You know? Yeah. This is the true meaning of back problems. The, the, the problems which the back has. Yes. That's what it is. So, now I have to see what the, the whole thing here is really about. What this practice looks like. Because I can't sit actionless, even though that may be the truth of me. If I'm already happy and contented, what is the need for action? But I can't seem to sit actionless. Like Lord Krishna says to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, Nahi kashtit kshanamati api jatu tishthati akarma krit karyate hi avasham karma sarvaha prakriti jair gunairhi as though by the force of nature, this body-mind complex is just always acting, 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 acting. This is what gives us the clue to what our practice has to look like. How to harness our actions to make them a form of practice. That is basically what the, you know, what the Upanishads, our sacred texts, and the Bhagavad Gita, all of them talk about spiritualizing the everyday actions and making them into a form of practice. But we are so far away from that. We are so alienated from that. So many times you don't know, you know, whether you are going or coming, you don't know. You find yourself in the landing of the staircase. That's why it's called landing. Yeah. Was I going up or was I coming down? Did you do this? I forgot. I don't know. Because that it's, you know, one reason is because the mind is elsewhere. But there's a deeper reason than that. Why is the mind elsewhere? Why is the mind not reliable? Why, whenever we talk about the mind, the only thing we can say conclusively is never mind. That's the only thing you can say. Why is that? And that is because the, the, the root of this is somewhere else other than the mind, even deeper than the mind. It is a sense of alienation from oneself, which we, all, which we say is the whole. The sense of disconnect is so much that our everyday, you know, if we think of the daily sadhana now, it will look very frightening. Nobody wakes up in the morning, you know. I was just, I just threw off the covers. And then what did you do? 
I jumped into the shower. Why don't you walk into the shower? No, no, no. You just jump into the shower. Then what? Grabbed a bite to eat. Very disconcerting, you know, very, very disconcerting. Then what? Hit the road. There is even one song, hit the road. And then what? You know, cranked out something there and became cranky. Beat the traffic on the way back. And nobody cooks, threw something together. Yeah. And then what? Crashed. <laughs> this is our daily sadhana. And that's why everybody hates their life, hates their jobs, hates themselves. I don't like it. Because the next day I have to do the same thing. And at the end of the next day I crash. And then, you know, the third day the same thing. And then crash. And five days I work, I can't wait for the weekend. And weekend I'm just like some kind of a wild bull let out of its pen. <laughs> and then what happens? And then, you know, weekend itself causes a crash. And then after that, again, the same thing starts. And you know, it's so crazy, so crazy. I work, work, work for five days just so that I can have Friday and Saturday. And then Saturday, they keep a talk now, you know, like on a day like this. <laughs> and then I work for one year in order to get two weeks off. Then I work my whole life in order to get retired. You know, this is, you know, you can't wait for that contentment and that ease and that rest to come. That rest is, that restfulness is you. That is actually the meaning of Zen, which is derived from Dhyanam. That, you know, meditator, that meditation is you. What you seek is already there. And so therefore, if I keep hunting for it, even in spiritual circles, I will always come up empty. And if I keep leading the life as we just saw, as we just described, it's not going to get me anywhere. I have to recraft a new agreement, a covenant, a sacred covenant with myself in order for this to be stopped right here. And the nice thing is, it's never too late. It's never too late. And in the, in our, in the Vedantic tradition, in the Hindu tradition, we, this is, this is, you know, this is what a non-Hindu would do, what we just described. This is very, very seen as inimical to the truth of oneself. Instead, you spiritualize the waking up process itself. There is even a song a chant, an ancient chant, you can chant to yourself upon waking. It's so soothing. Rathasmarami hridisam spuradatmatatvam. In the morning, I recount, I recollect, I recall the truth of myself. What is the first thought usually? Where is my coffee? You know? <laughs> yeah. Where is the caffeine? That is the first thought. Or the first thought is, what day is it? Oh, what do I have to do? These are the thoughts. They are swabhavika, they are natural. Natural means, you know, bestial, animalistic. That's part of the programming. You have to 
transcend the prakriti, you know, the base aspects of one's own nature. And so here this chant says, you know, this is something you can do for yourself. Recall who you really are, what you are really seeking. Oh, but then I won't have time to brush my teeth. You choose. Should I brush my teeth or should I contemplate on the truth of myself upon waking? Wake up early. Oh, no. <laughs> I can't. Go to bed early. I wish I could. <laughs> you know, see, there's always there is, you come back to that cycle. Some habits are hard to break, but we have to start somewhere. So replace the thoughts. Even if out of habit one thinks, what am I doing? Where am I going? What am I, oh, there is so much to do, I'm overwhelmed. Stay, stay in bed. It, it's not going to take five hours of meditation. It's going to not even take five minutes. Give yourself the gift of the first two minutes. Welcome yourself back into the world of the waker. Jagrad avastha. Congratulate yourself, you made it. Because you, you recognize the surroundings, it's familiar, I must still be in this body. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> Give yourself the, you see, all this I'm talking, we still haven't finished two minutes. See how long two minutes can be. Give yourself the gift of connecting, whatever, by whatever means necessary. You know, breathe, watch the breathing. Don't try to meditate lying down because, you know, that's like a snooze button. You go back to sleep. Yeah. Awake. Look at the things around you. Think of why you have them hanging around all the... And then if you don't, if you don't see the point, take them down later. Make a <laughs> note to self. These are much better ways to spend the first waking moments because if we start the waking itself with disconnection, then the whole day is just gone from under the feet. It's gone, it's hijacked. Then we are advised, when you come to yourself, look at the hands. Just look at the hands. Why the hands? Because these are the organs of action. This is the ways through which I can comfort somebody by patting them on the back, or I can cuff somebody because of the helplessness of anger. And there is a chant for that. Everything is prayerized, you know. And you say, may the fingertips be, you know, with the goddess of abundance, may she reside in the fingertips. May the goddess of knowledge reside just behind all my actions, so all my actions come from wisdom, a silent prayer. Then the feet touch the ground, you are out of the bed. A silent prayer to Mother Earth. I don't know about yesterday, but today let me tread on you lightly. Small, light footprints, let me not be a burden on you. And no Zen person should jump into the shower. <laughs> really, very un-Zen to jump into the shower. And even in the Hindu tradition, we are like, you know, you were saying, we share a lot in common. In the Hindu tradition also, you don't do that. You go very carefully and you make that also, the bathing becomes a ritual. The outer cleanliness, you know, is an invitation to begin the process of inner cleanliness. 
outer cleanliness so many soaps are available so many fragrances rose lily so many things inner cleanliness is achieved by meditational practices so this is an invitation a preparation to meditate and then you know in the hindu tradition we look in the mirror and put something here this is a kind of an energy center and that's not for the body it's for to honor the indweller within that we are trying to seek to know that is already there the cooking itself becomes a yagna yagna means what a practice becomes a practice because i take the time i'm not throwing things together neither am i nuking something that's even worse <laughs> such violent metaphors we spend the day by violent metaphors and then at night we ponder why is there so much violence in the world <laughs> this is how it is this is the irony so the cooking is an act of worship and eating is also an act of worship because it's not for you the body doesn't need to eat it's the indweller you're feeding that most sacrosanct indweller seated in the inner sanctum sanctorum of the body mind complex and the feeding is a ritual it's it's not you know it's not done with anything else in fact you know when i was raised when i was small i was told don't eat and talk eat and then talk and then when i came to this country i was confused because they said let's talk it over lunch <laughs> and the first few lunches whoever took me to lunch was very disappointed because i didn't say a word <laughs> <laughs> then i got americanized so now i will talk with lunch but the thing is you know this is what the practice is that you are so much with your food there is no time to talk you enjoy it you appreciate it you see where it came from this is the practice so like this the whole day goes on everything is an act of worship it's dedicated it's a practice dedicated to be closer to the nature of the i closer to myself closer to who i am so that even if i feel alienated in a in in a short while for a short time there is another practice in the day to day coming up to bring me back everything is like the bell you know the bell you have one here ah big one you see i was looking for the small one yeah everything is like the bell it's an invitation to abide in that in that gong which says om that om is you it's an invitation to abide deeply within oneself so all here in the in the temple we have the bell but then out of the temple you know of course you can carry a bell and keep ringing it but you know you are in a work environment and maybe that looks silly that may look funny and uh, that may look strange but here what we do is that every action is like that bell which brings us repeatedly back all the actions and then when i lead the life like this when my practice my daily practices of the mundane are spiritualized 
then it becomes a meditation to brush the teeth. It becomes meditation to cook, clean, work, take care of children. Everything becomes a meditation. And it becomes a means to an end because it's no longer the end in itself. It becomes a means to an end. And it becomes a means to an end because I now have freedom to inhabit these moments. So, in this way of practicing, I'll go for a little while longer, because uh, Greg Zahn requested me to go a little longer, since uh, the Holland Tunnel took some of our time. So, if you need to leave, you can, but I, I will close presently and we'll have some time for questions. It'll take, uh, give me five more minutes. So, the practice itself is leads to a place of spiritual growth, because it is wedded to that. And we start with the day-to-day -day actions. And then we move to the realm of spiritualizing our relationships. First, I spiritualize my actions, because they are intimately connected to me. Then you go to the realm of all the relationships, starting with the most significant one. I see it for what it is. It's a practice. You can't spend the whole life trying to change the significant other, even if that's the reason why you got married in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> you have to let go of that. Yeah. Because trying to change them is frustrating for you, frustrating for them, and it is, it's a dead end. So instead, use them for your spiritual growth. Yeah, this is fascinating and fantastic. Because then you have no disagreement. Because even in, if in your perception they are being at their worst, that means more opportunities to abide in myself, more opportunities to practice, more opportunities to be close with myself. In fact, at the end of the day, you'll feel so grateful that they have lost their temper, that, so that you could just be more, you could have more opportunities for practice, that you'll end up giving them a flower. Thank you for contributing to my spiritual growth. <laughs> this is what it is. And this is only if one of the spouses is practicing what to talk of if both the spouses are coming to the center. Then the joy is doubled. Yeah. Each time one is cranky, the other one, you know, is just like, okay, goody, more opportunities. <laughs> oh, goody, you're going to lose your temper again. Yippee! This is the place we should get to. Oh, and so sometimes people don't lose their te temper. They're just apathetic. They just sit there like, like a potato. And, you know, oh, goody, you're still not going to do what needs to be done. <laughs> Even though we have agreed upon it several times, oh goody, more time for me to grow. And all the areas where I feel pushed and pulled and like taffy, bent out of shape, more opportunities. Thank you, thank you. You do the big namaskar to them, yes. And if, if up till now you have been wondering, why am I with this person? This talk should answer that question, yes. Because before you were born, you asked Mother Universe, you asked Maya 
please give me lots of opportunities for my self-growth. That is why this parentage, that is why these kinds of siblings, that is why this kind of spouse, and that is why these kinds of children. Children are wonderful because they know what buttons to push. <laughs> because you think you don't have them, they know where they are located. Without referring to GPS, they go there directly. They don't even know, take a left, take a right, and you know. No, they go directly, especially when they are teenagers. More joy, you know, and you look upon them, you look upon all the family members and anybody you are connected to as little, little Buddhas with whom you can, because of whom you can grow. They are your teachers. They are the little, you know, impetus. They are the quickening agent, you know, like you put in the bread, like the yeast. And when, until you put the yeast, the, the dough is very boring and sitting in one place. Then you add the yeast. It grows, it becomes a Mahatma, it becomes a, a big being, it inhabits itself and it envelops everything. It, it grows, you know, similarly we grow into being less reactive, more accommodative, less grumpy and cranky, more compassionate, <coughs> less miserly and more relaxed. And that is really, you know, that is the goal that is to be achieved here and now. That is the shanti, the contentment without which everything is meaningless. And the Bhagavad Gita says, Ihai vataihi jita sargaha yesham samye sthitam manaha. For those whose minds, manaha minds, are in samya, samya means in a state of equanimity and acceptance where they have actually seen that all the things that cannot alter, that I cannot alter, I have spiritualized. How? By putting it at an altar of surrender. That's why it's called altar of surrender because I cannot alter it. It ends up altering me. So I put it at a limitless altar of surrender from whence, from where I get the energy, the strength, the mental and emotional strength to go on with my life in joy and a place of acceptance. We talk of acceptance only for the things we cannot change, because invariably the question will come, if I can change, why should I accept? Nobody is telling to accept things that you can change. If you can change, please change. But we are talking of things that cannot be altered. And this is what is, is very, very needed for one to grow, where all the Buddhas in your life become the agents for, for change. And this is the practice that one has to perfect, ironically, to understand that I am the being that is already perfect. Thank you very much. Om Tat Sat. questions if you have whatever questions you want to ask you're welcome Yes. Um, it's like my nervous system. 
Yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And um, what I, what I, I, because the dilemma is always like, what do I, part of me is like, you know, what do I cut out? It's a very rich life, many, 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 many blessings. I have many things that require my response. Yes. You know? Correct. And none of them I actually want to let go of. Right. Yes. Tempting as it is. Tempting as it is. Yes. I know that has to arrive. Right. And so that's, you know, while I want to surrender and, um, and, and say yes, you know, when, that, when does that contraction need to, need to be it's sending me a message that says I need to do something? Yes. Yes. That's a very, that's wonderfully put, very beautifully put. And uh, I would say that, and, and uh, the, the, the key point is the word no here. And which is very difficult in the practice, and which is very difficult if you're leading a spiritual life to say no, because if the end is compassion, there is there should be space, should you know, should be space for everyone and everything. But really, the no is 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 not a real no, because when you say no, you're saying yes to something else. Ah, it's never a no, because we say the no doesn't exist, because when you say no, you're saying yes to the body that needs one more hour of sleep because of which you will be able to function even better for the next several days. When you say no, you are saying yes to the body uh, that needs to be fed, to a mind that needs to zen out or zone out, whatever it needs to do. You are saying yes to something else. The question is, do we value that yes? And why does this no become more important than that yes? Why is that yes not even acknowledged? Why is that yes silent? Why is that yes a shameful yes? Why cannot I, if I see the whole world as an extension of myself, then why is this body not needing the rest? That is what we have to ask ourselves. It's very difficult, but every no hides a yes. And we have to see and reclaim that yes. And also the uh, another wonderful thing ha starts to happen. When you start modeling the silent yes into a loud yes, it will become, everybody else will heave a sigh of relief. Yeah, everybody else, you become an inspiration, because you already are. So we all become inspirations. Like, oh, look at how this person is taking care of themselves, or doing whatever is needed, needing to be done. They are okay to say no, that means I'm, I can also do the same. So that, you know, the, the, the tightening and the relaxation, both are like dominoes. You can start a trend, you know. And here, since you are all practicing together, it's very easy to start a, a new trend. Yeah, very beautiful, very beautifully said. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you 
That's right. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yes. It does. Yes. It does because that was just you know it was a funny it, it, it uh, the irony of it you know uh, what is that struck me and it is the universe's way of keeping us all in a very humble place at all times yeah so so the the procrastination in a way is key because part of the reason why we feel over overwhelmed not all the reason but sometimes is because there is a tendency to put off what we do not like to do laundry you know and <laughs> so many things things you know if you don't wash clothes for 5 weeks and all there is left is one hanky to cry into that's all you know <laughs> and so then it becomes even more overwhelming and when we talk about procrastination you know it's it takes us away from the present which is the truth of oneself which is all now and when you look in the into the meaning of the word now it's infinite now is timeless is now over now or is now over now is it now is it now is it ending now 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 or is it now you see now is free of time but i don't see that because i'm always you know i have in my mind a compartment of the things i don't like to do and i that goes in the back burner and when that happens then it it's not that it's not getting done it's not that it's getting done it's not that some elves are coming and doing it it has to be done at some point and so we follow what we tell our children when they sit down to eat eat what you don't like first we tell them and this is what we also have to do yeah eat what you don't like first then you can enjoy what you like but this plate has to be clean similarly my daily things have to be clean the slate has to be clean before i sleep otherwise sleep doesn't come so i do the things first that i don't like and i do it as an act of worship first a gritted teeth worship <laughs> but still a worship you know especially if you're going like this you can't meditate like that you know and so slowly you 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 see the humor in that you relax you relax and you grow to being a person that you like whatever there is to do you grow to that because the likes and dislikes hijack one from this and make a you know make some kind of a division this is good this is bad it's a personal subjective division yes and then you I've noticed over the past uh, several days, I know for the first time uh, that I have been just overwhelmed with the uh, grief of the world. And uh, I, I recognize it as being overwhelmed. Yes. Yes. So I wonder if you could say a few words to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a difficult situation. It's not that easy, because 
what we find is that generally we are empathetic as human beings. And that empathy means when something else is going on in the world that is so unjust when lives are being taken and there is so much rampage and disregard, of course we feel it, it is there. Uh, nothing wrong with that, but if it is overwhelming, then there are two ways, two things to look at. One is, is it connecting in some way, deep way or, or not even is, how is it connecting in some deep way with my own unconscious pain, you know. The pain of being, you know, we all have universal, there is universal pain and there is specific pain. The universal pain is I am abandoned, nobody loves me, you know, uh, I am uh, invalidated and uh, I am not good enough. This is universal pain and the specific pain is, you know, that plus I am a middle child, that <laughs> plus I am this one. <laughs> you know, the, 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 that, you know, that the, the uh, base is, you know, because with the same dough you can make cakes, cookies, so many things, you know, it's not like that. So, the base, <laughs> the base is the same, you know, that invalidation, that, that has to be loved up and it is tempting to give that invalidated part of myself to somebody else to have and to hold and to cherish for the rest of my life, but it does not happen. Because they have that same part that they are hoping you will hold and whatever. So, you cannot foster out the inner child, you cannot outsource the inner child, you have to parent it. So, that split which is already there between the anxious one and the one in pain and the contented one, we again spiritualize and make use, you make the contented one which is the adult hug the anxious one. Yeah, sing it a little lullaby, spend some time doing that and that actually is a very valid practice because that is how it is going to come together because the split is not real. It is experience therefore, it is not unreal either it is in between. Sad asadhyam anirvachaniya, anirvachaniya means you cannot categorically say that this pain exists, you cannot categorically dismiss it, you cannot affirm it, you cannot affirm it because I am satchidananda, I am contentment and you cannot dismiss it because I hurt, I have pain. So, therefore, you have to deploy this as though tactic of soothing it yourself. You have to parent this inner being who is in pain. So, that is the first one. And the second way is to do something, the prayer is a, also an action, but in addition to that some reaching out action, if you can help contribute towards raising awareness or have a support group or you know if you are financially able you know send some money or something like that, then you feel you have contributed and the helplessness becomes less. So, these are the two ways. Yes. But you know, even though I try to in the daily life, and I think to some success, you know, when I sweep the floor, when I cook, when I, you know, there is that unification with myself. Uh, there is a sense of uh, also that's beginning to pick up that I, as if I'm been told to be to sit outside myself all my life. And that there is uh, in inhabits within me a stranger mm. um, that 
It's like I've never been a stranger to anybody else to this degree. And uh, it's like just to, um, yeah, I guess it goes back to your concept a little bit of the split. But yeah. even though a unification is happening, there's a recognition of the abyss. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it sounds like there is a little bit of dissociation, an experience of dissociation or a disconnection. It happens frequently in, in spiritual practice, you know, but in the day to day, uh, you know, it's like spending some time inviting or, and you have to do this as a ritual, you can't just mentally visualize it. It helps to invite all the parts of oneself to have a cup of tea. You know, in fact, have a pot and have many cups, and then oh, you also have come. Okay, one more cup. You pour, sit. You know, oh, you are new. I didn't know you existed, and oh boy, you are really mad. Okay, here is some tea for you. You know, and oh, you are the dissociated one, the disconnected one, who is all aloof and hanging somewhere. Come join the party. No, I don't want to. You don't even exist. No, I. You know, doesn't matter. Join an invisible party. Come, and you know, you just bring them all together. And uh, you know you have to actually ritualize it. You can't just you can maybe do it mentally after a certain point has reached, but in the beginning it really helps if you do it. And even if other people think you're crazy, it doesn't matter. You know, you do it when you're alone and have spend some time, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, it doesn't take long. And have them talk to each other. You keep a journal, you are the reporter. You keep a journal and say, okay, what is this one saying to that one? And sometimes they don't want to look at each other. Sometimes they, they say that I, if, if this one is coming to tea, I'm not coming. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very interesting to see. And immediately you get a kind of an insight. Ah, this is what is happening with all these various, you know, parts. And all those parts are, you know, they are also Buddhas. You, you bring them in. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. And for you, it will be very easy. I know that. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. My heart's very big with your talk. Uh, I was thinking when you were talking about ritualizing the day. And in Sutta Zen, we have gatas for everything. And so we have these, in fact, we're teased a little bit that. So to Zen, you have a prayer for tying your shoes. You know, yes, day. yes. But they've fallen away already. Oh. And um, in the monastery, it's much more the case. And, and the way people are training, it's much more the case. But, but there's a way that, uh, and this is my self-feeling remorse and, and recognizing a certain responsibility. Because, um, because Americans, I don't really want to be doing this gata for everything I do. You know, it takes too much time. And, and I have found, I've re-employed this recently because I have, you know, got up first thing, cup of coffee kind of thing. And bringing back, we have a chant that says, in the morning may I be Avalokiteshvara, in the evening may I be Avalokiteshvara. Mm. It's a longer chant, but that's the, the And this is just to say the day changes profoundly. Yes. Profoundly when the first thing that happens is the ritual of one's deepest yes. commitment. One's deepest commitment is the first thing that's recognized. Yes. And, 
No, it is all there. We come from the same mother. That is what it is. That the mother tradition, it is all there. And we are just offsprings of the same mother. And it is all, it's all within, you know, the Zen tradition and within the Upanishads. It is all from the same source. And it is very beautiful. And uh, yeah, I will have you teach me the shoe prayer sometime, whatever. <laughs> yeah. It will be fun to learn that. Um, any other questions? Uh, we will end with a, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Namaste. Yes. How do you spiritualize that? How do you, how do you? Very good question. First of all, we are not talking of abuse. We are not talking of anything harmful. We are talking of garden variety personality, you know. <laughs> Personalities that we are all familiar with. And if that is the case, there are several ways to, you know, actually go about spiritualizing it. One is to, we would say, is to have an exercise where you give them the freedom to be who they are. Yeah, you know, this is how they are. And if, even if the word comes, oh, but they are incredibly selfish. Okay, this is how they are in my perception. They are selfish, they are mean, they are mad, they are crazy. But you add the word in my perception. This is how they are. And then the next thing is, you know, is where the key lies. Take, I take the time right now in my meditation to grant them the freedom to be who they are in my perception. Then it validates your perception. It is not wrong, but it also validates that the fact that Right now, you cannot do anything about how, how you think they are. Yeah. That is step number one. Step number two is to see that this person has a background. And when they speak out of character, the background is talking, they are not talking. It is the background that we talked about, the basic, the base dough of invalidation, fear, trepidation, you know, unloved, unwanted, along with a few toppings. That is what is talking, a few specific toppings, cultural, familial, etc. This is what is talking. So, when I see that they have a background, and what is reacting to that background is not me, but my background. It is the backgrounds that are getting married. Yeah. Shadows are getting married, and because really this is what is happening. And so I, I recognize that I recognize their background. You know, I spiritualize their background because that's how it is. Then I recognize my own background. This is how it. Okay, my background is because what is in me? Because how come somebody else is not reacting to that? There is something in me that is getting hooked. So I recognize that I, as worshipful. I recognize their background as worshipful. And then slowly, you know, what happens is that I, I stop acting out of my background. I start to inhabit and be present. I am in the foreground, no longer in the <laughs> acting from the background. The background should never be in the foreground. That is why it is called background. But usually, <laughs> but usually in our relationships, the background comes to the foreground and the person is lost. So then, when I recognize this, the background is relegated to where it belongs. 
and then you tell it, not now, I'll have a cup of tea with you later, shh, promise, you stay now. And then with objectivity, when you see this, you see that the way they are behaving, they cannot but behave like this, considering this background. That is the seeds of compassion slowly as one grows, you know. This is how they are because they cannot be anything else. And also there is a very beautiful and a concomitant relationship with cleaning up one's own background, then everything kind of gets cleaned up. Because I have very few hooks and then I find that if I am less and less hooked in the situation, then I find that the other person is not provoking or is provoked. You become a soothing presence and you know they uh, they say uh, in India that when the Buddha was sitting in meditation for a hundred mile radius, nothing was sick, nothing was sad. It was that, that is the power of one person's practice, that is the power of one person's commitment to change. Think about that, you know, and here there is more than one person, so, so much energy, so much power. And we be little ourselves, we say, what can I, I can't do, I am this small, you know, thing, that is the background talking. You are powerful, you are all light and we step into that. And you know, when I step into that, I become bigger than the problem I face. When I do not step into that, the problem becomes bigger than me, that is not a fun situation. I become bigger than the problem, then the problem is a baby, yeah, you put a pacifier in the mouth, finished, yeah, go to sleep now, <laughs> that is how. Any other questions? If I may, I would like to end with a Sanskrit chant and uh, I will explain the meaning first. I am sure that you have a similar one, if not the same one. Um, may all beings be happy. May all beings be free of affliction. May all beings see only the good in one another and may all beings be free of sorrow. Uh, lead me from darkness of ignorance to the light of knowledge. Lead me from untruth to truth. Lead me from death to immortality. So, whoever knows can join me. Om Sarve Bhavantu Sukhinaha Sarve Santu Niramayaha Sarve bhadra nipashyantu, ma kaschid dukha bhag bhavet, asatoma sadgamaya, tamasoma jyotir gamaya, mrityorma amritangamaya, om shantishantishantihi. Harihi Om Shri Gurubhyo Namaha Harihi Om Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.